Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. I'm Pam Larickia, longtime unschooling mom and author. Join me and my wonderful guests for interviews, information, and inspiration about unschooling and living joyfully with your family. You can find the episode show notes, your free introductory ebook, What is Unschooling?, and lots more information at livingjoyfully.ca. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Pam Larickia, and this is episode number 107 of the podcast. It's the 17th of January, 2018, as I record this intro. My guest this week is Jessica, an unschooling mom living in Germany. Unschooling is illegal in Germany, so we've kept everything on a first-name basis to protect her anonymity. Jessica decided, even before her son was born, that her child wouldn't attend conventional schools, but she had no idea that the alternative schools that sounded so great wouldn't work well for her son either. In our conversation, we dive into the challenges they found with two different alternative schools, how her decision to make the leap to unschooling unfolded, what de-schooling looks like for them both now, and lots more. And I want to thank everyone who has chosen to support the show on Patreon. And a big welcome to new patrons, Katie Britton-Tedder, Lisa Flanagan, Elizabeth Ann, Elisa Rose, and Rosen McAnalty. I hope I said your names right, guys. (laughs) Wow, thank you so much for your support. It means so much to me. I'm excited to dive deep into the fascinating world of unschooling together, sharing unschooling information and inspiration with anyone who's curious to learn more about this wonderful lifestyle. If you'd like to support the show, even for as little as a dollar a month, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And this week's quote is from Jessica. That was one of those really big, important parts about actually validating and taking that time because I thought I was doing it before, but it wasn't until I didn't have those time constraints on us that I realized this can take hours and hours or days as it needs to, and it can just keep coming up because we're always together. That's such a valuable insight. The gift of time we get with unschooling is so full of wonderful surprises when we nix the time constraints, even internal ones that we put on ourselves, and let things flow. Let them take as long as they need to take. It's like discovering a whole new world. Thanks so much, Jessica. As a bit of an extended update this week, I'm excited to share some information and thoughts around the survey I put out last month. Thanks so much to everyone who took the time to participate. I really appreciate it. And I thought you might enjoy getting to know our community a bit better and hearing some of the things they've shared, as well as what I've been learning about ways I can be more helpful on your unschooling journey. And if you're not interested, no worries. You can just skip ahead right to my conversation with Jessica. Okay, so 336 people participated in the survey anonymously. The first question was, where do you live? So 53.5% of the respondents were from the US, 14% from the UK, same from Canada, and 5% from Australia. 
and 13.5% are from 19 other countries, including Germany, the Netherlands, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, the Czech Republic, Moldova, Lithuania, South Africa, India, China, Japan, the Philippines, New Zealand, Cayman Islands, Mexico, and Argentina, and a traveling family. That was awesome. I love seeing the spread of unschooling around the world and just knowing there are people all around listening. The second question was, where are you on your unschooling journey? About 14% of the respondents haven't started unschooling yet. They are learning about it to see if it's right for them. And that's wonderful. I love that you guys are curious and are actively trying to learn more. 70% have been unschooling for less than a year, so I imagine most of you are actively de-schooling. It's an intense time with mind-blowing aha moments alternating with panicky moments of what am I doing? So hang in there and keep learning. Keep spending time with your kids. It will come together. The largest chunk of our respondents, 41%, have been unschooling for between one and five years. I love knowing so many of you have made it through your first year. Most often, by this point, the panicky moments are fewer and further between. We're comfortable with how well unschooling works for learning, and now we're discovering how it weaves so wonderfully into everyday living. Unschooling becomes a lifestyle. My conversation last week with Kelly Callahan is a great example. She's been unschooling for four years and is now seeing unschooling connections in practically every aspect of their lives. And that leaves 28% of respondents who have been unschooling for more than five years. I love that you guys are here because our learning and growing is never done. And continuing to look at our lives through the lens of unschooling is a spectacular way to stay connected with our children, our partner, and the kind of parent and person we want to be. The next question was, what is your biggest unschooling challenge right now? I got 329 answers to this question. Thank you. As I go through them in detail, one thing I've learned is I need a better way to help you guys find specific podcast episodes related to various kinds of questions. Someone actually mentioned that too in an answer to another question. Not that there are definitive answers to find, but with over 100 episodes, there are conversations, thoughts, and perspectives that are shared by my guests and I that touch on so many of the unschooling challenges people encounter along the way, including a good number of the ones that were mentioned here. But I realized there's no reasonable way to find them. Who has time to click through to every episode to scan through the questions looking for something specific? So I want to see if I can better tag and group episodes by topic or challenge so that these conversations are easier for you guys to find. In the survey, someone suggested maybe putting together podcast episodes with snippets of various episodes focused on a particular challenge. That sounds like it might be an interesting idea. Some of the episodes are deep dives into a topic, but those topics also get mentioned in other episodes as well, depending on that particular guest's experience. So another piece of the puzzle may be that school has so ingrained the idea that once you do something, you tick that box and there's no need to go back to it, that people don't even think to go back to old episodes. But even if someone listened to the episode six months ago, if they weren't having this particular challenge at the time, that part of the conversation probably passed them by. 
And that's not a slight at all. It's how we learn. We pick up what connects to us in that moment we're listening. So I'm also going to try to get better at sharing earlier episodes on Facebook to help people discover the many gems that are there. Even if you listened to it before, I know we've talked on the podcast about the value of revisiting information and ideas a few months later. Often you find that things make even more sense now and you gain new insights because since then you've grown and changed. In the responses, there are also lots of ideas for new topics and questions for me to tackle on the podcast or maybe on my blog or maybe even in a new book. (laughs) So thanks for taking the time to share your current challenge. Then there were a few questions that are likely more interesting to me than to you, like how people found my work, which of my books they've read, and how they like to read, meaning print books, ebooks, etc. The interest in audiobook editions was pretty much split down the middle, which means that about half of you would like them, so I'm going to put recording them higher up on my to-do list. As for translations of Free to Learn, there were nine requests for Italian, four for German, a couple for Japanese, and a few other languages, including Klingon, which was hilarious. Thanks for the laugh. (laughs) The next question was whether the respondent listens to the podcast, to which 75% said yes, which is very cool. And for those who prefer reading to listening, I have the transcripts and the newsletter summaries. I am keen to continue having the information and insights shared by the podcast guests available through both channels so that anyone interested can choose their preference. The draft transcripts for the older episodes have almost been done too. I just need to get them formatted and up on the website. The next question was, which kinds of episodes do you enjoy? And the top five episode types were, number one, individual topics with unschooling parents. Number two, Q&A roundtables, the monthly episodes with Ann Oman and Anna Brown, where we answer your questions. Number three was growing up unschooling, interviews with grown unschoolers. Four was 10 questions episodes with veteran unschooling parents. And five was Deschooling episodes, conversations focused on the transition to unschooling, often with newer unschooling parents. And unschooling dads episodes were the runner-up. That's great stuff to know to help me plan future episodes. Speaking of, 169 respondents answered the next question about topics they'd love to see covered on the podcast. Thanks so much for the outpouring of ideas. It's energizing to be able to swim in so much inspiration. And again, some of the topics have been touched on in previous episodes. So figuring out the archive discoverability piece will be really helpful for you guys, I think. Next, I asked about the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit and over 50% of respondents said they were interested in more information. That's awesome, and here's your opportunity. (laughs) The summit registration reopened today, and you can find all the information at childhoodredefined.com. I'd love to have you join us for this winter expedition. And lastly, I asked if there was anything else they'd like to share, and 226 people generously answered. Many of you took the opportunity to share your appreciation for my work, and I was so touched. Thank you, thank you. It's great to know that you're finding my work helpful on your unschooling journey, because that is what I love to do. There were a few that I thought would be interesting and or fun to talk about as well. 
So someone asked about my Myers-Briggs type. <laughs> it, it's a INTJ. To me, unschooling and the unschooling journey are both amazingly complex systems, and the systems thinker in me just loves trying to make sense of them. I've actually spent three years now working on my next book, The Unschooling Journey, A Field Guide, which looks at our unschooling journey through the lens of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. It's been fascinating work, and I'm so excited to finally be releasing it soon. Another person shared that they found the podcast by Googling something like, how can I find more joy in my life? <laughs> I thought that was awesome. A number of people mentioned they really enjoyed the newsletter summary of that week's podcast episode, which is good to know because they take at least a few hours each week to put together. A couple of people asked about whether I'd be interested in coaching online. Now, for me, I know it's not one-on-one, -on -one, but the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit is basically my take on coaching. I love sharing information and insights about unschooling through the podcast, my books, and on my website. And you've probably heard me talk on the podcast about how there's intellectually understanding unschooling. That's the first step. But then there's that next step, the real personal work of actually bringing it into your family's everyday lives. Now that's what Anne, Anna, and I focus on in the summit. And we're there engaging with the participants in our private Facebook group, answering any questions that arise as they work through the content and as they go about their days with their children. We dig really deep in there. And again, you can check that out at childhoodredefined.com. One respondent shared, in 2009, we lost our always unschooled 19-year-old to a seizure in his sleep. Nothing could have made me more grateful for our unschooling life and all the time we had together. I'm so sorry for your loss, and I want to thank you for sharing a great reminder that we don't know how long we might have with our children, and that spending our time with them in joy now is so meaningful. They are a real and whole person from the moment they're born. Someone asked about videos. Well, the summit has videos. <laughs> I've been getting more comfortable with video, and this year I plan to record some of the talks that I've given over the last few years, as well as newer ones that I've written for online conferences and events, so you can watch out for that. Another person mentioned they'd love the podcast to be less scripted, that they enjoy the natural flow of the Q&A and feel the other episodes would benefit from a less structured format. And I found that so interesting. Just to share a little behind the scenes, the only shows I make notes ahead of time for are the Q&A episodes. I usually spend two or three hours prepping for them, contemplating the listener questions and making detailed notes, because often it takes some mulling things over before possibilities and insights arise. Now for the interview episodes, uh, yes, I spend at least that amount of time prepping. So contemplating the topic, researching the guest, writing the questions, and then arranging them in an order I think will keep the conversation flowing. But then I'm done. So once we get on the call, I like to let the conversation flow wherever it wants to go. So I don't have any prepared notes for those episodes. And that said, how other people experience the episodes isn't wrong. It reminds me that I create the work and once I release it, it's out of my hands. I have no control over how people connect to or absorb my work. And I don't want to. 
<laughs> and all of a sudden, my work is feeling closer to art than ever before. That's cool. <laughs> okay, one last comment I wanted to talk about. One respondent wrote, I'd love your interviewees to be people who live and love unschooling. I know a couple of your interviewees in real life, and although they have picked up how to talk the talk pretty well, the depth of living unschooling is not there. Now, I appreciate that point, and it's one that I've contemplated ever since I started the podcast because I don't know the majority of guests personally. But as I thought it through, I realized that we are all on our own unschooling journeys. And as I mentioned a bit earlier, the first part of the journey is about intellectually understanding the principles of, of unschooling and how it works, which means being able to talk the talk to know what they are walking toward. I strive on the podcast not to have conflicting information about the principles of unschooling, nor about ways to develop the strong, connected, and trusting relationships with our children that help unschooling thrive, because I don't want to confuse people. But the next stages are about learning how to weave that understanding into the reality of our everyday lives. That takes time. And that is where I try to help the podcast shine, talking about what we're walking toward on our unschooling journey and sharing the treasures found, the missteps taken, the insights revealed, and the skin knees that happen along the way as we explore this unschooling path. Sometimes our actions fall short of our ideals. Sometimes, because life and the people in our lives are always changing, there are times when we're struggling to reconnect with our children, to get back in step with the dance of our relationships. So I don't think someone needs to be near the end of their journey to have valuable experience and insights to share. It's a solid point, though. Thanks for mentioning it. Okay, sorry, this went on a bit long. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this glimpse into our wonderful, wonderful community. And thanks again for those of you who participated. Remember, registration for the summit is now open. Check out childhoodredefined.com and I will get to work on releasing my unschooling journey book, recording videos of my library of talks, recording audiobook editions of my books, and figuring out a way to help you guys discover all the wonderful nuggets of unschooling wisdom that are buried in the podcast archive. And thanks for all the ideas for future podcast topics that you'd like to see. And now let's get to my conversation with Jessica. Hi everyone, I'm Pam Larickia from livingjoyfully.ca and today I'm here with Jessica. Hi Jessica. Hi Pam. Hi. Now recently Jessica shared some snippets of her and her son's journey from alternative schools to unschooling and it was so interesting that I asked if she'd be willing to share it on the podcast. Obviously she agreed and I'm so excited to speak with her today. And to get us started Jessica, can you share with us a bit about you and your family? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Canada, and um, I now live in Germany with my son, who will be 13 in a few weeks, and my partner. Well, then let's dive in. So when your son hit school age, you chose an alternative school. So I was wondering how that decision came about. It was actually a decision I made a lot earlier, even before I was pregnant because I was studying and I was trying to think, what am I going to do? 
in the future and thought about doing a parallel degree in teaching. And so I went and I did an internship at a German school and visited one of them for the first time. And during those four weeks, I was so shocked about how the school worked. And I don't know if that was part of the differences between the Canadian system and the German system. I think it's a lot more rigid here. But I was, I just, I did a class where I had a lesson plan all set up to discuss a book and then they they just went off into this amazing discussion so I just threw out my lesson plan and went with the discussion and I was told afterwards you can't do that you have to stick to your lesson plan and it made it so clear to me that what these schools were about was not what I wanted like it had nothing to do with the children had nothing to do with actual learning it was about pulling through with this plan and that's when I start to look for alternatives and yeah it didn't take long before I heard about democratic schools and there was one in the city I was living in and so even before my son was born we when we were pregnant we joked oh well let's register him there already so that you know he's got a place all settled (laughs) So did you end up following through with that teaching? I don't know if it's a degree or certificate there um, after that I, experience or? <laughs> I did later on, but I didn't do the, like I did the first part of the degree. I didn't do the official teaching part where I would have had to go to a regular school. I just did the theoretical part of the degree so that I was qualified as a teacher to teach at an alternative school. Ah, oh, that's really interesting. Um yeah, because you did mention that that you became a teacher at that school, right? Yeah. So um, my son ended up not going to the democratic school because at the time I began to become aware that there were a number of schools in the area. And I, I went around and I looked at them all. And I found that the problem with the democratic schools is it was huge. There were a lot of kids there. And when I went there, I thought a lot of the younger kids, they felt kind of lost. Like there was not a lot of connection going on between the adults and the children. And at that point, that was already something that was really important to me, that he wasn't just lost in the sea of children and not um, feeling connected with anybody. So I ended up choosing a smaller school that wasn't quite as free as the democratic school. Like the children were allowed to choose what they wanted to do at all times. The one exception was the weekly assembly. But the adults were a lot closer to the children. Had There was just there was five adults for 50 kids. And it just felt a lot more familiar, like it was more of a family setting in a way. Mm-hmm. And so... Then I became, after he started in kindergarten, and then I became a teacher a couple of years later. That's really interesting. So uh, what were some of the aspects in that environment um, for your for your son that he found challenging? Yeah, that... It was it was a long process to recognize those two because working there, I just I felt like I was so involved in the whole project, and I thought, wow, this is so amazing. Looking for everybody was so so enthusiastic about being respectful with the children and trying to establish this whole new way of being with children. And I thought this is the way to go. And when I noticed my son was having difficulties. At first, I thought it was me and I was doing things wrong or things were going wrong at home or it was because 
uh, various other issues. So it took a really long time before I began to question some of the things that were going on at school as part of the problem. And that's when I started to have sort of a new view on things where I realized, first of all, one of the things that was going on is that the, the teachers were really close to the children, but they weren't actually in a close relationship with them. Like a lot of what they did was just observing them and they stayed out of sort of at a distance, especially emotionally. They tried to keep an emotional distance and to not influence the children too much. But that also led to them sort of being unauthentic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that became a really big problem for my son, too, that he felt like they one of the things he described later is when teachers would would say something and then they'd have this one look on their face and the way they were acting wasn't the same. Like uh, the way they were feeling didn't sort of add up to what they were saying, like they were putting on a show. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, you can tell that. Yeah, the when when the words don't match the whole, whole body language, right? Exactly, and I think yeah. he's somebody who's really, really in tune with that too. He's very mm -hmm. sensitive to it, maybe because of that experience. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing I noticed, and the other thing that came up was um, there was a number of things where children were not really allowed to make. Um, a lot of not all of the decisions on their own, like there was a lot of restrictions in place because they thought um, younger children aren't um, mature enough to be able to gauge the how like what the the consequences of their decisions, and they believed that they needed a certain amount of protection. So they had all kinds of rules in place about what you could do, like certain things couldn't be done inside or outside. I mean, some of those are things we have at home anyway, like if they, games get really wild, then it may be that they're not suitable for a certain room, but they were very rigid about those things. So there was no room to negotiate in individual cases. And mm. they were increasingly enforced through what they called consequences, thinking they were natural consequences, but they were adult-imposed consequences, like then you can't be inside for the rest of the day or you can't be in the garden. And I gradually began to realize that essentially what we're doing is punishing the children <laughs> in a lot of situations. And it's, my son was also very... He, he's the kind of he's he's always been a very autonomous kind of personality, very strong personality, and he doesn't like somebody telling him what to do or pointing him in a direction. And that felt like that to him. Like he felt like you're not seeing me and you're not seeing what's going on with me. And it, um, so he'd start to fight against the punishments or start to argue against them, and that became that sort of it. it it just, it was like a catalyst and it kept getting worse and worse and that it became clear that in some cases the rules were more important than the child, than that there'd be like sort of a power struggle going on between the teacher and my son, especially with one teacher. And I tried to discuss that with them and it became clear that this is a school setting and that means there's, even if there's a lot more teachers per children than in a regular school, they still don't have the capacity and the time to sit and go through all of the various 
to talk with the children to see what's going on behind things that at least my son would have needed in order to get over some of that that was going on because they had to be there for all of the children. And that meant that to a certain degree, the kids had to function because otherwise the whole system wouldn't work anymore. That's so interesting. So there was no um, fixed curriculum or anything that they were um, expected to follow, right? But it was no. no, but it was it was the environment itself to keep control of it. They um, had a set of rules that were it sounds like so those rules were just they, they spent most of their time uh, enforcing the rules versus discussing and treating the children as individuals. They were still kind of that group that were in this fixed environment. They just didn't have to follow a curriculum. Is that kind of how it went? <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly how it was. And it was ironic because it wasn't what we were aiming to do there. And I began to question whether or not it's that whole system school that makes it really hard to actually live the way we wanted to live with one another and with the children, because you're responsible for all of these children. And then we're in a country where you have to go to school. <laughs> so that mm -hmm. means um, they were also facing all of the expectations that the parents had, that the school board had. They have, you know, people coming in and checking, making sure is the school actually working, to put it you know, in quotes. Yeah. And um, those were all kinds of other factors that were that were having a huge effect on the way they were being with the children. And that meant that a lot of things were kind of under a certain level of duress. Mm hmm. No, that's that's so interesting. Um, yeah, as you think of, you know, thinking of the people, you know, running the school, trying to, because they have to fit into that system, right? And they need to be able to um, show su some success, or you know, for for their evaluations too, I guess. But I, it's it's not. It's not just about not following curriculum, is it? You know, the no. children's learning is is so much more than just yes or no, telling them what the environment um, is so important. Like even uh, even with rules per se, the, the discussion and understanding how it impacts an individual, you know, that... It seems like something that is is would be so helpful if you're able to. But as you said, they still had such a a large or a, the teacher student kind of ratio was such that the teachers weren't able to like individualize that and and validate a, a child's needs. And it sounds like it, there was still very much a an adult child hierarchy, right? Definitely. And I mean, there were certain things that even to, to be a part of the school where we sort of had to agree on beforehand, like there was a whole uh, thing of being very critical of media and screens, and those were t absolute taboo for younger children, and things like that, that just also affected my relationship to my son. Mm -hmm. Because I, I sort of followed the rules to a certain degree, especially being a teacher, I felt like I had to be like an exemplary person in within that whole system. And I kind of lost track of focusing on what my son actually needed and what our relationship needed. Because the whole school environment also influenced how we lived at home. Yeah. 
So how did you what how did you get to the point where you chose to leave that school? What was that choice? What did that choice look like? That that was one of, it was one of those points where I noticed my son was just rebelling against a lot of these restrictions and there was a situation where he was out in the garden and he he just dropped something in the garden and was told he had to clean it up and he refused to do it and then he was told he couldn't be in the garden the next day. And I just just sort of hit me that I know that there was so much more going on with my son at that point. Mm -hmm. And there was, he told me afterwards of all these other situations that had gone on before and why he was feeling so upset. And I realized that has no room here. And the teachers, as much as I value them as people, they didn't have the capacity to focus on that. And I felt like there was just this power struggle and the rules were more important than my son. And when that hit home, I'm like, okay, we're stopping here. And I had already stopped working there. I had already changed my, my job. So that wasn't holding me there anymore. That was probably an important factor that I wasn't one of the members of the staff anymore. Mm-hmm. And that helped me to sort of free up my own thinking. And to at that point, I was already focusing more, okay, what do we need? What does my son need? And that was just sort of more the point where I thought, wait a minute, if that's more important than validating what's going on with my child, then this isn't going to be working for us at all. And it was my decision. That was where I was still also in that I'm just going to decide this. I just felt like I had to pull on the emergency brake mm. and just to open up new possibilities for us, too. So from that point, uh I, you tried uh, Montessori school, I think, right? So how yes. was, what did that experience look like? That was also a very difficult experience for us, especially because we'd already come from an environment where the children were very free to choose what they wanted to do. And um, in between, my son stayed home for three months, but we were still at that point where where we live, he has to go to school and that just isn't an option, even though we both said, hey, this is actually really cool. So we just sort of look what alternatives are there. And he'd heard about that school because um, some friends of his had been there. And so he went and he immediately hit it off with a couple of the other kids. And that was what sort of held him through that. He had two friends that he um, really got along with and felt really, really good socially there. But from the beginning, there were all kinds of things that he didn't like about it and that were very problematic. Like there was um, an hour where they had to be doing Montessori material, which is wonderful material. But if you have to be doing it, that was an issue for him from the get-go because he wasn't used to anything like that either and um, that was difficult for him to just settle down and say okay I don't want to do anything with my friend or I want to do stuff with my friends but now I have to focus on this that was really really difficult for him because he hadn't ever been in a situation where somebody said you have to do math now and um then they had like um, meals where all the children had to sit down together and they had to stay at the table until everybody had finished eating. Those were just things that were new to him and that I I didn't like either. So that probably made it even harder for him to just agree with it. And um, those were things that sort of that were huge drawbacks. There was this wonderful environment. It was a beautiful setting. He had some great friends, but the other things were just too big a drawback for him. The compulsory nature of things is just that that's where it it 
it all goes sideways, doesn't it? You know, when, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, it could have been, it was a beautiful environment, uh, other friends that he had there. And I wouldn't be surprised if he could go and come and go as he wanted. He might have enjoyed it a lot more, right? I'm sure he would have loved it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing that um, that I began like it's yeah. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying that as soon as somebody tells you you have to do this now, then it's no longer part of your intrinsic motivation. And exactly. I think especially for somebody who, who's grown up in an environment where he's been so focused on his intrinsic motivation to then have somebody else say now you have to do this, he was just like what, mm-hmm. and um. I and it's that, that whole power dynamic in there, right? It, exactly. It's a fight for control. Who can control what I do? And you're right. I mean, what he would learn out of those experiences where he's, you know, um, forced, for lack of a better word, to sit and do those activities versus if he chose, came across them, was interested and did them is like night and day, right? Totally. And I noticed even because before that, at the old school, the first school he was at, they also had um, Montessori material and they would offer here, we're going to offer a math group right now. But it was absolutely voluntary. So he could choose, do I want to go take part in it or not? And the stuff was all there in shelves. He could take it out. And he used to love doing math. And after going to the Montessori school where he was told you have to do this and you have to do it in this order on top of it all, he stopped wanting to do math. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, exactly. That was really, really shocking for me to see that um, somebody who actually has always really enjoyed that, but never, never in a conscious, like he ne- never sat down and said, I want to do math. It was that he'd, he'd want to figure something out and he'd take out the material and use it and wouldn't even be thinking about it. But as soon as somebody said, okay, this is math and you have to do it this way, then it lost its appeal to him. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. That's such a huge piece. So interesting. So from that point, how did your decision to leave that school surface? Yeah, that it it also took a while because I said to myself, I'm not going to go back to this. I'm going to make a decision. It was a decision that I was only going to do with my son. So there was a lot of conversations that went on whenever difficult things came up at the school and trying to figure out, okay, how can he deal with that? And I began to realize that some of these situations, either you have to say, okay, I'm going to live with them because I want to go to this school. But as long as I'm saying, but we have to go to a school, and he thinks an alternative would be a regular school, which he definitely didn't want to go to, then he doesn't feel like he has a choice to make. Mm-hmm. And so I started to back off of that and started to say, you know what, if you don't want to go to school, if you just want to stay home, you can because that it took some nerve. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely did. And it took meeting other families who had also done that. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a huge, huge step where I thought, okay, there are other people that are doing it. And I mean, I'm lucky enough that I grew up in Canada. So I grew up in a country where I know homeschooling is accepted, even mm-hmm. if it's maybe not the norm. But I never had this feeling like it's wrong or something you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And since I had already sort of gone down that road of going to an alternative school and I'd had so many experiences the years I was teaching there that I had absolutely no doubts that 
he's going to get what he wants no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing. He's going to get what he needs and he's going to learn everything he needs in life. So I didn't I didn't have that fear. I was more just, okay, so what happens if we get caught kind of thing? (laughs) And there it was just really important to talk to other families to figure out, okay, what options do we have? What could happen? And that really helped me to calm down about it. It's an ongoing process, but yeah, that was a big part of it. Yeah, I can imagine. So even though your son only attended those alternative schools, did you find that he needed some de-schooling time when he came home? Totally. And we're still in the process of it. (laughs) And uh, part of it, a lot, certainly the the bulk of it right now is still from the last school he was at, where he says, like, he doesn't like, he doesn't like eating in a group. And he he realizes Mm -hmm. himself it's because he had to sit there at the table. And at least he's aware of that. And I just think just he needs that space to really, really feel like, okay, nobody's going to come and force me to do anything. And that's partly because of the school, but it's also partly because it took a long time for me to step down from being in control of certain situations, too, because I've been so accustomed to it over the years as well. And, yeah, that's a great part, a great big part of our process is to get used to that. And um, I think... For him, too, I uh, was very restrictive with things like media and screen time, things like that <laughs> earlier on. And um, it took me a while to let go of that completely as well and to recognize listening to your podcast was a big help <laughs> to recognize all of the things that are going on there and to try and let go of the fears that I have that surround it all and he's totally just trying to embrace that and to dive into that. And still you notice those moments where so look at me and almost provocatively say, I'm going to play video games all day today, just so that (laughs) (laughs) to see how I'm going to react to it. And that's where I realized that he's still not entirely sure. He hasn't sort of settled down into this, just being completely sure he can choose what he wants to do. Yeah. Developing that trust takes time, doesn't it? Oh, really? It really does. Yeah. How long has he been out now? He's been home for three quarters of a year now. Ah, that's awesome. So speaking of uh, de-schooling and you mentioned screens, um, what have been some of the more challenging shifts that you're going through now as you move to unschooling? Um, well, yeah, definitely getting used to the, the the media and embracing that for myself has been one of the very biggest parts of it. And generally just letting go of control and where I recognize it's a very gradual process. I think it's like as soon as I've let go of one thing, I'll recognize, okay. oh, wait a minute, there's one more thing <laughs> I'm still holding on. And um, even once I figure, I thought I've let go of something, fear will come in. And that's the thing that I really have to work on is to recognize, first of all, to recognize where I'm acting out of fear. And I'm saying something that um, is just from that place of fear and has nothing to do with now, what the situation is now or what our needs are or based on any fact, even to some extent, there's just these deep rooted fears that I think a lot of us have. And I maybe part of it was that whole teacher training and learning all of these things that kind of fit into the traditional way of looking at how children should be growing up, how children should be learning. 
And I don't feel like I've had to de-school on the academic side. I think that my experience working in the alternative school really helped me let go of that because I was able to see teens growing up and coming to the point where they're finishing off their traditional school years and going on to do other things. And it was just wonderful to see those various different processes that helped me let go of any fears I would have had on that scale. But on the other scale, like of what do children need to develop healthily? Like how much social context do they need? All of those thoughts sort of would focus in on me and make me feel like, oh, wait a minute, he hasn't got enough social context. He should be having that whole should. Yeah. Um, that would sort of set me off into something and I'd have to sort of break myself and realize, wait a minute, <laughs> just how is he doing right now? And focus on now. That's a really, really big aspect of it. That's really cool. That's uh, what I find really interesting and why I love talking to so many people is, is everybody's de-schooling journey <clears throat> or unschooling journey is 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 so unique, isn't it? Based on um, the experiences that they've had in their lives, there's so many um, conventional ideas out there, but some we've already worked through just based on our experience. Like you said, you'd seen those teens, and you'd seen um, that they did not need like a curriculum, compulsory curriculum um, way to to learn quote, academic skills and um, information to move into the world. Yet there are were other things that were personally, um, were your fears, basically, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, so what, what was it? How, how do you approach um, moving through something when you even how do you realize is there is there some way that you realize oh I'm reacting to a fear is it just you know um uh, uh, for me I remember it was like a almost like a physical response I would when that topic would kind of come up I would notice that I would be kind of clenching <laughs> <laughs> And and it wasn't until I noticed that kind of physical response that I'm like hey something's off here, you know, and I, I'd be avoiding conversation. So I just thought it'd be interesting to, if you could share, you know, how you noticed um, that there was an issue for you to start digging into and, and how you like to approach that processing. I definitely know the physical response, like the clenching, <laughs> but that's usually something I only notice afterwards. So I realize, ah. oh, you should have put into that. That's maybe something that I'll get to in the future. It's more that I'll start um, talking what will be like in the middle of a discussion or something will be going on and we'll get into this discussion. They'll get really heated really quickly and mm -hmm. I'll just feel like my head's like just spinning and I'll just realize at some point, wait a minute, none of this is coherent anymore. And I think we're just reacting to one another. And that's when I realize, oh, wait, stop, slow down. You're just getting really emotional. Usually it's that I get really emotional about something. Ah. And and then when I when I get to that point, then it's just that stop, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes stop the conversation and just go back like go back to it if necessary at another point sometimes it all it means later is just to, hey wait a minute i was just totally off my thing there just forget it mm -hmm. but um usually it's that sort of getting emotional about things and 
I find it's really hard still sometimes to recognize it myself. It's usually my partner when he when he witnesses it, he'll sort of put his his hand on my arm and I'll sort of look at him as like, okay, I'm there again. Or <laughs> so it's it's really hard to notice it in the moment. I find sometimes mm. it's usually a lot easier afterwards, and I'll be my head will be going, and I'll be trying to go through it all. Where did, where did that all go so weird? And and at some point I'll realize, oh wait a minute, just stop. Get out of the fear. Just look at what's going on. And then everything will clear up sort of gradually. And then I'll realize, oh, you know what? That's what it was really about. That's it, right? Because in the moment, you often don't even know what the fear is that's being triggered. It's it's just no starting to realize that, oh, I've been triggered by something, right? And then it's the work to dig in and, and figure out what is it that I'm scared of in this situation um, that's making me respond this way, feel mm-hmm. this way. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think um, one thing that I think the first step for me was to recognize and where I was reacting to other people's demands or expectations. Mm-hmm. That was like the very first step when I began to realize, wait a minute, I'm like saying no, just because that person over there is standing there and expects me to do it. And so that was the easier one once I realized that that's what was working on me and like public situations or when my mother was there, things like that. And once I let go of those, like that was easier to recognize and to let go of and then to realize how those expectations are still working in me, even when those people aren't there. That's the trickier part because it has a whole lot more to do with how I grew up or my schooling and what expectations I've had on me that are Um, that have a whole lot more to do with society and school and what is success and how do we learn and how do children develop healthily and a whole lot less to do with me and my son. Mm -hmm. And I found um, certainly in the first few years uh, after one of those encounters, you know, where you're in a place where those expectations are so clear on you, um, it would take me a couple of days, even after we, you know, left that situation and came home, um, to get myself back into an open and relaxed mindset, right? Because then mm-hmm. you have to kind of reprocess all those expectations again and remind yourself um, what's what's true, what you found, or me, what I found to be true about children and about learning and everything. Um, I, it it would be work again. Now it, over the years, it got faster and faster. And then it got to a point where, you know, right in the moment, it didn't affect me anymore. But it's still it takes a lot of work at first, doesn't it to even if you even if when you went into that situation, you were comfortable and sure. But all those um, expectations being thrown at you really you need to reprocess again, right? To get totally. through, to get through them. Yeah, because they just sneak up on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, like everybody thinks this. <laughs> why do they again? And why don't I again? And it, it's it's like, um, you know, really just absorbing it into your being, I think. It, and it's just, you know, Sometimes people get so um, frustrated with themselves when mm-hmm. and and feel like oh you know I'm not strong enough or or I don't really believe this or am I fooling myself or um, or 
not uh, not making not uh, making the right choices with our lifestyle, etc. Like, and can we can really beat ourselves up? Oh, um, yeah, but yeah. to you know, I hope people um, can can realize that this is all part of the process because. You know what? I think it is the number of times, and it's totally unique to each person, the number of times that it takes to reprocess um, our understanding of a particular uh, thing. You know, whether it's it's how children learn, how they don't need... um, a, a curriculum and and why um, somebody else's idea of what they need to learn doesn't uh, doesn't mesh well with an individual and what that individual needs to learn, or maybe it's um, the compulsory nature, right? Mm-hmm. But if I don't tell them what, they're going to miss something. You know, all those things that we work through. It's not about working through them once and then knowing them. You can understand them intellectually. But it takes processing them over and over and watching our children and seeing them play out and so that we can also bring that into our understanding until we eventually um, really believe it deep in our bones because our understanding now meshes with our experience. So this processing, it's it's work and it's hard and, you know, it's it's scary in that first fear response, but it's worth it. It's not so wrong. Much. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so worth it. And, and it's not wrong, you know, not to beat ourselves up, but to to do the work, to do the work each time, not not think, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, a horrible unschooler because I just got thrown for a loop because I spent a day you know, in, in a big group that had much more conventional ideas or whatever. And I, and, and then you try to avoid it, right. And push it down, but no mm-hmm. process again and again and again. And I think when, the, I mean, it's so important because I think we all get to that moment of beating ourselves up. And yeah. I just think there's this, the sentence that I think in one of the schools, even it was somebody who always said this, everybody always, um, always shows the very best behavior that they can at that moment. And that's sort of a mantra that I sort of keep telling myself in those moments where I realize that, hey, I, I'm, I'm human. I've got my own mistakes and my own past, and I always do the very best I can in that moment. And that just keeps getting better. Like, I'm here now, and yeah, okay, it threw me through a loop, but I'm going to learn from that experience. I'm going to continue, continue on, and next time it'll be even better. Exactly. And that learning from that experience is that processing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Rather than like trying to, you know, ignore it or just make yourself feel guilty about it and and say, oh, next time I won't do that. Well, you need to process and work through it again to learn deeper because then you're a different person next time you walk into that experience, right? Yeah, that means how we learn, right? Exactly. It's true. And, you know, that's our upbringing. That's part of what we have to process through that. It's not right, wrong, right, wrong. You're right or you're wrong, right? Ooh. Or you're good or you're bad. It's like each moment, like you said, being in the moment um, and and accepting that we're doing the best we can in that moment, but we want to learn from it so that we um, can continue to grow as an individual. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, it, yeah. that just that just really it just you know really came up for me when you were talking about how important um, that processing is as part of our deschooling and you know the deschooling to unschooling thing. I mean, we're always learning, right? There's there's always going to be things that come up. We're always learning um, and and shooting for the person that we want to be, you know. And, so and our children are our best teachers. Like I think. Throughout the whole process, my son has been the best gauge for me of how I'm, how, where I stand and what I need to work on. And with some of the things, I just announced it to him. Like when I realized, okay, these consequences I'm doing, they're punishments. And I told him, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. And so whenever I would slip into that and say, well, if you don't do that, then, and he'd sort of look at me, mom, you're doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Um, so helpful. And it also sort of um, was always sort of a hint to me, like I'm in the right direction. Like when I sort of would, would say like, you know, I don't want to be controlling this. And he'd be like, well, that's what every kid wants to have a mom who doesn't want to control things. And those are those moments where I think, yeah, if I could listen to him a whole lot more than to that inner voice in a lot of these situations, then I think I'd be doing a whole lot better already. <laughs> I know exactly. I mean, for me on my unschooling journey, I that's what I've said too. My children are my guides because um they are are just they are they feel free to they point those things out to us because we've created that relationship, right? Where we can have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um but they are uh, so smart for lack of a better word you know they they are in the moment they see what's going on they're you know children are so um commonly disrespected that way that they don't know what they're you know talking about they don't have the experience etc but when you um engage with them as another as just as another person in your life an important person in your life they have so a wealth of information and insight to share don't they (laughs) totally and there's i mean especially i think the younger they are still too or the more they grew up in an environment where where they are respected, then you'd realize how unclouded their judgment is and how much they're just so in tune with their own emotions and needs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so amazing. Because I think that yeah. even at an early age, I, I as a kid, I was one of those really, really good kids and I wanted to please. And I think I was from an early from an early age on, I was really focused. OK, so what do I need to do in order to you know, to be the good kid and was already very far away from listening to what do I need right now? How do I feel about it? Exactly. And watching them in action just reminds us how things can be different. And, and, you know, I did the same thing. I was like, okay, what do I need to do to satisfy, you know, the adults around me? And I would just get that done. So then I could just go off and do my own things. And when I was a kid, I never understood, you know, the people who who would resist that 
and and say no no and I <laughs> I tell him my poor brother why <laughs> why don't you just go clean your room then you can go and play <laughs> instead of sitting there for an an hour arguing about whether or not to clean your room <laughs> but now I'm like wow that makes so much more sense but it's so much um it was it was so much processing and work for me eventually when I realized um how far I was, uh, how I was always just focused on on pleasing other people first before before um, I would even think about what it was that I might be interested in. So, you know, it's just so fascinating to watch, just even just watching them in action. It's not like you even have to have deep conversations with them or anything about them. Watching them and how they um, pursue their interests, how how they deal with when things go wrong and and how how determined they are when they're intrinsically motivated. It's just fascinating to watch them in action, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I that's, that. that's the best thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so our last question, what do you love most about your unschooling lives right now? I love that we can just focus on us, that we don't have that school that's sitting there and saying, but this is the way, isn't the way it should be. And we can just do things the way we feel we need to, and we have the time to do it. And through that time and that focus on us, our relationship has grown so much. And I think that's really what makes such a huge difference in our lives now from a year ago where I've uh, just in fact my son for a while he he had stopped calling me mom he was calling me by my name for years like nothing that I had instigated and at some point in the last few months I noticed he started calling me mom again and I thought that says a whole lot about how our relationship has progressed that was just a really touching moment for me Oh, I can imagine. Wow. Yeah, just just to notice that. I have goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> and and we don't realize how much before we start this, how important that time together is, do we? I don't I don't think so. Like time um is is so valuable in our lives and and open time, right? Not time that's controlled and and scheduled, but time to just be together makes a vast difference in our relationship doesn't it oh totally and just when I think back like even when when my son was young I was still trying to 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 validate his emotions and to take the time to go through all those steps but it just often wasn't there because then I had to go to work he had to be at school there was all these other things going on other you know in a school situation there's all these other parents watching you and all of these other factors that just didn't um didn't really make it feasible and Mm -hmm. that is one of those really really big important parts about actually validating and taking that time like I thought I was doing it before and it wasn't until we didn't have those that pressure and that time constraints on us that I realized wait a minute this can take hours and hours or days as it needs to and it can just keep coming up because we're just almost always together and that means that there's just that space for all of especially all of those old things to come out that didn't have time back then and gradually step by step those can be released now because we just give them the time they need Oh, that's beautiful. 
And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Such a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you, Pim. That's great talking to you. <laughs> it was wonderful. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes at livingjoyfully.ca forward slash podcast. While you're there, be sure to check out the third book in my Living Joyfully with Unschooling series, Life Through the Lens of Unschooling. This book is a wide array of essays drawn from my blog that shed light on the day-to-day lives of unschooling families. You'll find essays tackling everything from learning to read to visiting relatives, all organized around nine keywords that have been woven into the fabric of our unschooling lives. Deschooling, learning, days, parenting, relationships, family, lifestyle, unconventional, and perspective. The theme is life, the lens, unschooling. Until next time, have fun living and learning with your family.